0: On the line with us today, we have Kelly Wienersmith, the co-author with husband Zach of A City on Mars. And I should read the, uh, the, the 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 full title here. And that is, Can We Settle Space? Should We Settle Space? And have we really thought this through? And you guys have thought it through. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, somebody might th- who doesn't know the book, hasn't read it or doesn't know your view on it, um you're not opposed if if I'm you tell me now you're not opposed to say space settlement the concept just don't rush into it well what's your what's your take on that
1: yeah absolutely so my husband and i are giant sci-fi nerds and we started writing the book because we we were hopeful that maybe space settlements were going to happen in our lifetime and so we we set out to write the book like the guide for our near term future in space and the more research we did, the more problems we came across, and we ended up deciding that it, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetimes, or or maybe even we hope it doesn't happen in our lifetimes, because we'd like to see it happen slowly, make sure we know a lot more, for example, about biology. But we'd love to see it happen eventually. We're definitely not anti-space settlement, but we are pro a thoughtful, slow approach to settling space.
0: Is your next book on self-driving cars? Or what?
1: <laughs> Uh, no, but I, I hope that they, they are a hundred percent perfect by the time my daughter is old enough to drive, but, uh, we'll see.
0: The, the information in the book, I mean, the, the, I think is fascinating because I think most of us, and again, it depends on, on, uh, someone's attention to the subject, but if you're just sort of, oh, okay, yeah, we landed on the moon and we know this. So we, we've, we remember the, yeah, I guess it also depends on your age because mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember being herded into the auditorium at school to watch the the mercury flights you know the the, the yeah. of shots up to the moon so us old people we we remember it when it was just sort of space race was just getting on underway um now it's a little different because uh you've got what uh, private uh rockets going up uh, uh bezos and and musk and, and folks that you mentioned in your book uh mm-hmm. among others uh it's it's a different world now isn't it
1: it is. And we, so we read a bunch of books predicting our future in space, starting in like, I think my husband even read some from the 1920s. Um, but, you know, we read them through like the Mercury and the Apollo era. And in almost every one of those decades, well, especially after we landed on the moon, people were saying, like, oh, you know, we could start settling space soon. And so, you know, when you say we could settle space soon, you, you know, you risk being one of those people was wrong because the, those people have been wrong for decades, unfortunately, but it it does feel different now. And, and this is why my husband and I initially wanted to, to write the book. So one of the things that seemed to be holding space settlement back in our minds was the cost of sending stuff to space. And so the right. space shuttle was pitched as like, you know, it's reusable. It's going to drop the cost of sending stuff to space. It's going to make putting stuff into space super easy and affordable, But it turned out that the space shuttle was super expensive and yes, it was reusable, but it was so expensive to get it like back up to a state where you could reuse it that it just didn't end up dropping the cost. But then along comes Elon Musk and he has dramatically dropped the cost of sending stuff to space. And, you know, I I think it's something like maybe a thousand dollars a kilogram or something. So it still costs something like three hundred dollars to send an apple to the International Space Station. So Hmm. it's still expensive. But it's way less expensive than it was, you know, before SpaceX came along. So, yeah, the, the private industry is making a huge difference in our ability to get things to low Earth orbit, for example. And now you're getting companies that are, you know, trying to get missions to the moon going. And I think Blue Origin is working with NASA on a lander for the moon. And so, yeah, it, it does feel like things are different now.
0: Talking uh, with Kelly Smith, the uh, co-author of. A city, well, a city on Mars. We're picking out Mars, but it could be the moon or uh, mm-hmm. any number of other places. I guess as we as we develop uh, more knowledge on space, one of the things in your book, Kelly, that I, I enjoyed uh, because you start thinking about it, and especially when you you look at today's news, is the whole business of how different countries, you know, are approaching this. The United States included. And these various space treaties, can you mention a little bit about that? Because I don't think people are clear on who owns what up there or where should we go and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. So originally when we had planned on writing the book, we had pitched one chapter on international law and the book ended up having something like four to five chapters on international law because it ended up being a much more important topic than we had recognized when we first started this project. So the deal is that, uh, you know, before 1967, uh, the USSR and the U.S. were starting to set off nuclear weapons in space. This was a way to see like, oh, can you knock out enemy satellites so that they can't be spying on you? And things were getting really scary. So the whole international community was starting to worry about what's happening with these nuclear weapons. We've got the USSR and the U.S. racing to space. Are nuclear weapons going to end up in space and who gets to own what's up there? And everybody was kind of freaking out. And so it seems like the right moment to go to the United Nations and work on some international law, uh, international space law. And so from that chaotic moment came the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. And it says a lot of stuff. But in terms of space settlement, the important things that it says are um, you're not allowed to claim sovereignty over anything in space. So when the U.S. got to the moon first, we couldn't say finders keepers. This is ours. Um, and it also says that if someone, when someone goes to space, they are the responsibility of some country that could be the country that they're a citizen of, or it could be the country that launched them into space, but some country is responsible for them. So if Elon Musk goes to Mars and says, I am an individual acting on my own, Mars belongs to me, uh, that is straightforwardly breaking international law. I see. But, but it is on one thing that is unclear is what you can do with the resources In space, so there's not a lot of water in the moon. On the moon, it's in like very most of it is in very concentrated spots on the poles, and so it's unclear. Like, could Jeff Bezos go to the moon and say that he's going to use that water to make rocket propellant? He's going to set up a gas station and he's going to sell it and make money. Um, It's unclear, according to international law, if he's allowed to do that or not. And the United States interpretation is that yes, that is okay. There was a 2016 Space Competitiveness Act that Obama signed. And then Trump in 2020 had a very similar executive executive order. This might be one of the only things our political parties can agree on is that it is okay to sell resources in space. Um, And then recently in 2020, the Artemis Accords came out through NASA and at least 20 other countries have signed on to our interpretation uh, of the Outer Space Treaty, that it is okay to sell resources in space. Uh, but not all space powers have signed on. And so, you know, it remains to be seen how the rest of the international community will feel about our interpretation of, you know, what you're allowed to do with those resources.
0: Talking with uh, Kelly Wienischmith uh, about a city on Mars, about space settlement, about uh, getting getting out off the Earth and maybe moving elsewhere. You know, Kelly, the, the most recent uh, space news, I guess, was uh, Japan uh, landing uh, on the moon. Uh, I think they're working on hopefully reviving their um, their robot that they have up there because I think they're having some problems. But I don't. I noticed in the news coverage of that, um, the, the, the brief part I saw, uh, the Japanese folks were excited like they'd won a, a World Series or something, and and you know waving their hands and and I, you know there's nothing wrong with that because you know I'm thinking that's been followed in other countries, but. This is, a, this is a little bit of a like a soccer approach to this whole thing, isn't there? <laughs> uh, going into space, it's like you know, can, can we be the? Can we win the 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 cup or something like that? Uh, do you see that?
1: Oh, I do. Like space. Space is beautiful and amazing and sometimes we cooperate and it's inspiring. But at the end of the day, it's also deeply geopolitical and tied up with prestige. So, you know, the reason we wanted to get to the moon before the Soviets isn't because there were a bunch of scientific questions we wanted to answer by landing on the moon. It was because, you know, by showing that we can get there first, we can show off how amazing our technology is and we can, you know, also show off the fact that we have these rockets that could be delivering missiles to you, but they're so powerful that, you know, we're going to use them to send our, our men to the moon. And so it <laughs> it's it's tied up with prestige and humans in general are very impressed with other humans going into space more so than they are impressed with like improvements in, you know, microelectronics, uh, which was very important in getting us to the moon. And so I you know I think when a country gets to the moon and especially if they can if we can get back to the moon with people for example I you know I think it's a country's way of saying like look at how advanced we are look at how amazing our technology is uh and so yeah I, I think it's it's tied up with prestige in addition to tied up being tied up with being inspirational and and generally awesome
0: I, I think one of the things that your book uh, seeks to you know I think uh, provide is is some Background information beyond the sci-fi movie, because mm-hmm. I think most of us, especially those of us who, who watch a lot of these films, uh you know, that becomes our view of space uh, that that which Star Trek, Star Wars, and, and many others have developed. And and you you get into the real science of it in the book, where you talk about the problems that the human body would have um, mm-hmm. in in space and and in 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 these conditions that. We haven't really thought through yet, or at least most of us. I'm sure there are scientists that have. But uh, that's that's a good part of your book, isn't it? The, the, the actual physical problems that we're going to face.
1: Yeah, this was one of the first topics we researched when we really started diving into the book after we wrote the proposal and it was time to actually do the research we said we were going to do. And we were surprised because, you know, you hear folks like Elon Musk say, you know, we're going to have boots on Mars by 2029 and two to three decades after that, we're going to have a million people there. And so you think, oh, my gosh, we must know that human bodies can survive in space for entire generations because otherwise he wouldn't be saying this. (laughs) But it turns out that the International Space Station has provided us with some useful information, as have the space stations that have flown before the International Space Station. But they haven't provided us with the kind of information that we need to know to live on a place like the moon or Mars or a rotating uh, space station. And there are two main problems. One of them is that the radiation in space is different than the kind of radiation we have on Earth. And the astronauts that are in the International Space Station are rotating, or sorry, are orbiting underneath the magnetosphere, which protects us on Earth from space radiation and it protects the astronauts to some extent as well so we don't really have data on humans for what happens to their bodies when they're exposed to space radiation and even if we did the longest stay has been 437 days so we don't know you know what a lifetime exposed to this kind of radiation would do Plus, the astronauts are essentially in free fall, so they're experiencing something like no gravity when they're on the International Space Station. And we know that under those conditions, they lose a bunch of muscle mass and a bunch of bone bone mass. Something like one percent of the density of their bone in their hips per month is lost, and that's Mm. even while doing tons of exercise. Uh, Mm. And and so we don't know. So you know, if you lived on the Moon or Mars, you'd have some gravity on on Mars, you get something like 40% of Earth's gravity. And we don't know if that would make that 1% go down to zero, and maybe your hips would be totally fine. Or if it, you know, brings that number down to something like half a percent per month, but now you're staying up there for your entire life, that could be really bad. You know, I wouldn't want to be the first woman giving birth when labor kicks in thinking, oh, I hope my, hope, I hope my hips are going to hold up uh, for this, like that would be a scary moment. And yeah. so, yeah, so there, there's a lot that we, there's a lot we have learned from the international space station, but there's not a lot that we've learned that's relevant to settling space.
0: One of the, um, uh, the big things these days, and I guess it's not been immediate, but it's been certainly around for a while, but seems to be growing the, the whole field of robotics, which, mm-hmm. uh, AI probably, uh, is the, the latest example of, of, you know, what, what does that mean for humans uh, moving forward? Uh, you know, robotics in space is something you cover in the book, too, because uh, that's obviously a, a tool that could be used. But are we putting too much, uh, you know, imp- imp- importance on that? Or what's your take on, on robots being, uh, you know, elevated in the space race?
1: Yes, I mean, they could make a huge difference. So one of the toughest things for astronauts is that there's going to be a ton of tasks that need to get done. They're in an environment that's going to need tons of maintenance. You know, if you read the biographies of astronauts on the International Space Station, they talk about, you know, it takes like an hour or two to fix the toilet, which is always breaking down. And then you're also going to essentially need to be like a subs- subsistence farmer to grow enough food if you're living on Mars. Right. Um, so there, there's going to be a lot of things where if you could get robots to take care of them, that would be awesome but a lot of the proposals that we read hypothesize that we're going to have robots that you know that take care of everything and you're going to be able to i don't know look outside the cupola at the beautiful sunsets on mars or something like that but <laughs> you know we we sent we've done amazing things on mars you know there was a little helicopter flying around in the martian atmosphere But we still have a lot to learn. So, you know, we sent a device that was meant to drill into the ground in Mars to get some information about Mars quakes. Uh, And we were only able to get in something like a few inches, maybe like the it just ended up being different than we thought it was going to be, maybe more compact. And it was a little bit harder for the device to get like a grip on the ground. And so, you know, I think it's going to be a long time. We're going to have to do a lot of tinkering before we can actually use robots to solve a lot of these problems. So, you know, I'm hopeful they'll make our lives in space easier, but I I don't think that that technology is going to, you know, uh, it'll take a while to develop that technology, I think. But AI might speed things up, and that would be great.
0: Kelly, uh, have you, um, and and I know you make reference to this in the book, uh, that, you know, you dealt with a lot of folks that are very, very high on space exploration and and settlement. Uh, Mm -hmm. have, Have you had feedback from some folks that say, well, you know, yeah, you raised some good points, but don't you realize that it's inevitable that, that we go into space, that that's the human calling or something? I mean, have, have you run into that or what, what kind of feedback have you had?
1: Yeah, we so we've had a broad range of feedback. We've had lots of people send us emails saying very nice things, saying things, you know, ranging from I didn't realize that there were this many problems or I realized there were this many problems, but the way that people usually write about space settlement, it avoids talking about them. And I appreciate that you talked about it. And then we, on the other, in the other camp, there have been people who have literally called us the enemy and another person compared our book to Mein Kampf, which was Hitler's book, which is <laughs> like an exaggeration of, uh, but anyway, so um, th- we do have, we have encountered people who say, well, we're going to do it anyway. Uh-huh. And, and I appreciate their enthusiasm Uh, for this amazing journey. But, you know, the international community in the United States does have a right to control the speed at which they get out there to do their things, you know, so that there are international laws governing behavior in space and countries are responsible for making sure that this stuff gets done responsibly. So if someone says, I'm going to do it anyway, that must that, that must imply some gov- some government would need to be behind them in order for them to be doing that. And so that, that makes me feel good. There should be some breaks on this train that's barreling towards space. Um, and so hopefully, you know, countries are careful about who they allow up into space and what they allow them to do.
0: Well, I was uh, reading your book, are we talking with Kelly Wienersmith, the, the author of City on Mars? Uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, reading through the various... Um, different countries doing this and that. And I thought, you know, when you look at, um, and I'll just take example of uh, paleontology, dinosaurs or something, there the world community seems to work together. You know, you have Chinese and Russian and American scientists uh, sharing pretty much, uh, you know, the latest dinosaur skeleton or whatever, at least in my limited knowledge of it. They don't seem to be, you know, fighting for, hey, we've got the only one, uh, whatever it was uh, from the uh, Jurassic period. Whereas space, now we're entering a new era with with China and the U.S. sort of sidling up to, you know, take, take this thing on. You know, you mentioned the U.N. Uh, agreement. Why don't we go into space as the Earth rather than mm-hmm. countries? Has that been brought up?
1: Well, so... It, it has been brought up, and I, I think a lot of the problem is that. So as I mentioned earlier, there's this prestige thing, prestige thing tied up in there, and so I think that you know uh, right. Kennedy was willing to spend right. tons and tons of money to get there first, and he he did actually reach out to Khrushchev and see if the USSR wanted to collaborate because he was trying to de-escalate things. Um, but I think countries, especially a country like the US, would probably be less excited to share some of the prestige benefits. But on the other hand, you know, we are collaborating with other countries who are in the Artemis project to get us back to the moon, and that helps make the project more affordable. Mm-hmm. And so there are some countries that can get along and can go to space together, but it usually ends up being the case that countries that, are, that already have good relationships with each other can start cooperating and going into space. Uh, and that sort of runs counter to this idea in space that, Space allows us to cooperate. It makes us cooperate. Uh, but I think historically what we've seen is that countries that are already getting along cooperate in space and it's not that cooperating in space makes us get along. So there's like a exactly. bit of a cause and effect thing there. But um, but right now, for example, China and Russia have not signed the Artemis Accords. And part of that is because uh, China is, I believe, explicitly barred from working on projects with NASA because of the Wolf Amendment. So there's an amendment through Congress saying that NASA is not allowed to use any funding on anything where China is a collaborative partner. And part of that is because we're worried that they're going to steal our technology. And then also there's concerns about human rights abuses that you don't want to be sort of tacitly sort of implying are OK by collaborating with someone. And so difficult to get the entire international community to cooperate. but I do think that you know probably some of our best chances of having a peaceful transition to life on the moon would involve a lot of cooperation and maybe an international station where I don't know every country contributes you know some percent of GDP or something like that to make it happen and then different countries can like rent space in there. I, I don't know. so I do think that international cooperation will help us be more peaceful on the moon when the time comes uh so hopefully we can we can make that happen but but as i said it's tied with prestige which makes it hard to get countries to pony up the funds
0: you've got a lot of good history in your in your book uh, as i mentioned earlier written in a, in a uh, you know an upbeat uh non-scholarly fashion which i think appeals to me but you had a part in there about how the U.S. acquired German technology after World War II, mm-hmm. uh, the rocketry uh, specifically. And the point I think you make is that the Russians were very upset that they didn't get there first. Uh, mm-hmm. to, this, the, we're talking about the V1, V2 uh, rocketry that uh, Germany fired off uh, towards the end of that war. And, uh, you know, America made off with most of it. The the rockets, the scientists, and everything else and and we kind of accept that. I'm wondering, after reading your your book, what would have happened had Russia got there first and and you know, acquired that technology? Uh, different different uh, set of circumstances there.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting thought experiment. Ah, uh, so I, I act. Of course, I don't know for sure what would have happened, but I can imagine it's possible that they wouldn't have had quite the same benefits that we would have had. Uh, by taking the German or bringing the German scientists back home. So the we read some stories about what the German scientists who did end up in the USSR, how they contributed, and they ended up feeling like the Soviet Union was a little secretive and they wouldn't really let them get involved in the project. So they were sort of working on the periphery. They didn't really feel sort of satisfied with their contributions. So it's possible if the Soviet Union had more of those German scientists, they might not have been able to you know, make the best use of them. Whereas when we brought those those rocket scientists to the US, we put Werner von Braun uh, in charge of the projects eventually. And that helped us get to the moon. So uh, but, you know, it, it's hard to say. Maybe if they had gotten, you know, the chief guy, Werner von Braun, I'm sure I'm saying that name wrong, uh, then you know, maybe they would have beaten us. Uh, but I'm glad they didn't.
0: Well, you know, because I think people, you know, and, and- Again, this is a lot of a lot of interesting history that's, that's long past now. But I think people might not realize the first rockets that the United States sent up uh, after the war were v were basically V two rockets that yeah. they inherited from from Germany. So you know, it was like they got a, a nice uh, start on their on their space program uh, acquiring Germany's.
1: Oh yeah, huge, absolutely huge. We, I mean, we had some rockets that we had made on our own, and I think. So, you know, Sputnik was the satellite the Russians set up, sent up. That was the first one that went up and sort of got the whole space rush started. Um, and our first rockets that we tried to set up blew up. And so people used to call them like a Kibutnik and Explodnik or something like that. Uh, but, you know, Werner Von Braun was he made a huge difference to our program. And we did take their vengeance rockets that they were, you know, dropping on London and we used them to go to the moon. I mean, we modified them a lot, but but right. yes, right. yeah.
0: Kelly, what's uh, one final thing? That's what. What's next for you, um, you and your husband? Have you got a collaborative project working, or are you going to explore space further? Or what's what's on your to do list?
1: Well, we're a little exhausted. (laughs) This project ended up being uh, a lot more research than we thought it was going to be, and then COVID came, and and we have young kids. Uh, So I think we're going to take a break on research heavy projects for a year or two. My husband's working on uh, more kids books. He also writes kids books and I'm a parasitologist. So I study how parasites change host behavior. So I think we're both going to focus on our primary jobs (laughs) and then uh, we'll, we'll take on this secondary job again in a few years. So we're we're on a short hiatus.
0: Well, Kelly Winnie Smith, we thank you so much. A City on Mars is the book. It's fascinating, uh, a lot of good history, a lot of information, uh, regardless of where you stand on space settlement, because uh, you, you you take on all the sides and, and present them well. So, Kelly, best of luck to you and Zach, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you in space, I guess. <laughs>
1: sure, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Take care. All right.